Can I tell you a story that encapsulates Damien's sense of humor? Please. We used to go bowling all the time. It was like our favorite pastime. And Mike is a great bowler. Uh-huh. Me and Damien and Lori are like, okay, I'm definitely the worst bowler out of all of us. And I was playing an exceptionally bad game of bowling. But it was also our first time bowling. And I sat down and he looked at me and he goes, I was in prison for 18 years. What's your excuse? <laughs> this is who we're dealing with. You see what I'm saying? Julia Pensavali. Oh, hello, Patrick Hines. You guys, before we go a second further, we're going to say we are doing West of Memphis. We're doing it in two parts, and here's the deal. Right now on the Patreon, you can get our part two of this ad-free at the $5 level. You can also get our interview with Jillian's best friend, <laughs> Damian Eccles. We talk all about the movie. We talk all about their friendship. We talk all about everything we could think of to talk about. And the other thing to know is that next week, part two of this will be our regular episode, and we're going to put the Damian Eccles interview in the regular feed as well. Yes. So if you want that interview right now, you get it at the $5 level. If you want to wait a week, you'll get it in the regular feed next week as well. Yeah. Which reminds me, just if you guys want more Jillian and me, join us on the Patreon. Over 250 full ad-free bonus episodes to download a binge right this minute. Yeah, we have after parties, AMAs, or we're taking your questions. That's the same thing. We're giving you <laughs> advice. You know, uh, Night Stalker and Heaven's Gate yeah. and The Vow. Like and all those like long-form series we're doing. You know, The Staircase and uh, the Lacey Peterson documentary and Gay- Cereal. Gacy? Oh, Gacy? We're uh, in the middle of Gacy uh, right uh, <laughs> Um, Tell me one more funny thing before we dive into this nonsense. Um, You're going to hear Eddie Vedder, the name Eddie Vedder in a New Zealand accent. Okay. That's coming your way. <laughs> All right, girl, what are we talking about today? Just tell them. Today we're talking about West of Memphis. and This has to be... Mostly because we never did it. Yeah. This has to be the most requested documentary we've ever had. Yeah. And I refused to do it yes. because it was, I just felt like it wasn't right. That that relationship with Damien and Lori is so important to me. I really want to take care of it. Fill the people in who don't know. Oh, yes. Uh, Mike and I are incredibly close with Damien Eccles, who you will learn a lot about in this, and his yeah. wife, Lori. Yeah. And we have been uh, for years. And Give us a quick primer. Like, how did you guys become close? So after they were released, which is actually the 10-year anniversary of their release is August 19th. 19th of this year. I mean, it feels which like is it why we're doing this. 80 years ago and two minutes ago. I, exactly. Damien yeah. feels exactly the same. And um, I told the story on the after party with me and Mike, but we, I went to a an art show and met Lori and sort of poured my heart out to her like I do, talking about December and how December is so meaningful to me and I know it's meaningful to them. And she looked at me and she grabbed my hand. And she goes, you have to meet Damien. And we went out to dinner that night and um, wow. we were just, you know, all four of us were really just in love really quickly. And we were visiting them in Salem and spending holidays together. And and um, I didn't want to do it because of all that. Yeah. Damien and Lori from the very beginning were like, do it. Like, yeah. it's totally fine, weirdo. <laughs> and I was just like, no, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. But there's so much happening in their case now, which you will hear about. And um, their their 10-year anniversary of their release is coming up. And it's like, if we can use this platform to spread awareness about what's happening in their case and to get more yeah. good moves happening, then I'm going to put my tears aside <laughs> and uh, we're going to do it. We're doing it. Nothing ever happens in West Memphis, Arkansas. We've had three children missing since last night. Three young boys murdered in cold blood. It appeared that they had been sexually mutilated. Is it your opinion that these crimes were motivated by occult beliefs? Yes. Arrested at 2.44 p.m., charged with three counts of capital murder. Life imprisonment without parole. A statement was put in his mouth by the police. They beat up all three of them. 
Then they tied them. Then they tied them up. Here's the state of Arkansas refusing to let the truth shine on this case. Did Damien invite you to some meeting? Satanic meeting. I was just a big liar. And I really was. You're dealing with a horrendous crime. It warps their judgment. There's careers at stake. The option to reopen the case was presented to him and he went, no, we found them guilty, we're done. We don't believe the people of Arkansas are going to be satisfied until there is a new trial. Not only is the state getting away with it, but the person who killed those three kids is still out there walking on the street. All right, girl. I mean, it opens on June 4th, 1993. We're at the West Memphis Police Department. I feel like the first, I think, 16, 17 minutes of this is sort of a recap of what happened to these guys. That's literally my first note. We start with a 15-minute recap of the case and what happened. Yeah. (laughs) And if anybody doesn't know, there are three, like, the the way I learned about this case was starting in, like, you know, the late 90s when I watched the Joe Berlinger series on HBO, which is called- Paradise Lost, one, two, three. Yeah. And basically, he just followed their case for three documentaries worth of material as it was happening right so i don't know if it was necessarily supposed to be three it just kept happening and um so those are great those are groundbreaking we wouldn't be here without paradise lost but west of memphis is definitely the most cohesive and just more updates like they kind of focus on john mark byers a lot and i think the second one Uh and it's like he's a (laughs) like peter jackson is here to tell you he's a a character (laughs) not a murderer right yeah he's a lot of things right however so the whole thing centered around these three boys, right? It's Jesse Lloyd Miss Kelly. He was 17 years old when they were arrested. Charles Jason Baldwin. We know him as Jason Baldwin. He was 16 when they were arrested. Michael Wayne Eccles? Yeah, That's I know. His name? Yeah. Where'd Damien come from? He, pick, he picked it. Oh, so. he's such a Damien. I mean, my God, I've never met the guy, but like, look at him. He's like a, the most perfectly beautiful Damien you can imagine. I agree. Damien was 18 years old on the day they were arrested. Yeah. So our th- our three victims here, that's why we call it the West Memphis Six, uh-huh. right? Justice for Six. Uh-huh. Our three victims here are eight-year-old boys. Their names are Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers. And- the story of the West Memphis Three, you know, Damien, Jason, and Jesse, that is a story that, like, we, of course we have to be telling that yes, story. Yes. But, like, the, it is undeniable that we lose the the victims a little bit here. Yeah, because the point is, let's find the real killers. I mean, let's can, do that. can you fucking believe this? At one point, Damien's like, The person who killed those three kids is still out there walking on the street. To me, that would seem like the highest priority. Not this case. Not me, Jason, or Jesse. You know, don't get me wrong, we're thankful for for the support that people give us. But the main thing I would be thinking about is there's someone who killed three kids still living in my neighborhood. Maybe it's just me. Yeah. But I would I would think that the state of Arkansas yeah. would kind of want to know who did this horrible thing. Is it just me? Great. I know. Great. I know. And the one thing I want to point out is that in the beginning of this documentary, we see them kind of after they've been convicted. And they're leaving the courthouse and the crowd is jeering yeah. and booing. Please remember that because uh-huh. this documentary ends a different way. Yeah. I I'm already going to start already. Um, Also, like, Damien is barefoot. They're just dragging yeah. them around. Yeah. They're kids. It's so obvious, like... Damien is 18 at the time. He looks, he still looks like a kid. He has a, like a little baby face totally. still. Jason, uh, Jesse looks like a kid, but Jason looks like a 
baby. I only know this because he's working with Maggie sure. on Murder and Alliance. Yeah. So I see pictures of him from time to time. He has like a full bushy beard. Like he had now looks kind of like an old man. Yeah. <laughs> Damien does too with a long beard. Yeah. It's like Damien. This documentary jumps around a lot and it's perfect. Yeah. It should jump around a yeah. lot. And it's Amy Berg, by the way. Oh, I so know. many of our friends are here. I Lauren Ryder, uh, Natalie Maines. Steve Drizzen. Steve Drizzen, uh, John Douglas. Yes. Like, the gang's all here. It's directed true. by Amy Berg. And like in a good way. Like the last time we said the gang was all here, we're talking about like Nancy Grace, Geraldo, I, Beth Garrett. Finally, I'm surprised. I'm like, oh, that's right. John Douglas is here. I oh my know. God, that's right. Lauren Seaver here. Yeah. Finally, we're like happily surprised totally. for once in our lives. But we're in Blytheville, Arkansas with Pam Hobbs, who's mm. the mother of Stevie Hobbs. And it's a modern day interview. Yeah. And she's showing us the Boy Scout uniform that Stevie used to wear. When the the police were looking for like a scent from the boys to like look for them in the woods or whatever, this was the thing that she gave them. The bandana here. The only thing that I had in my household that had Stevie's scent on it. Uh, I've never washed it. When I get the need to just want to feel him again, um, I'll grab it and I'll hug it. And I'm so thankful I feel an embrace back. This woman, I, I like, I'd seen this documentary a hundred times before I watched it today, and I was like, I just love her. Like, yeah. I just like love this woman. This woman has survived. She's a, like talking about like holding her, holding this uniform when she needs to feel close to him. She feels like a hug from him. Yeah. There's a handful of people in this documentary who are able to see what they did wrong and are able to like shift lanes and and see this whole thing differently. Yeah. That apparently was very hard for most people, and most people didn't do it. But she's one of the ones who does. She's really come along way and she's so she says some things where I'm like that is so tragic and beautiful like when she talks about like just getting through it the best way she knows how like she's so aware of it so we're with Pam and she tells us about the May 5th 1993 timeline this is when the three young eight-year-old boys uh, went missing. So she says she uh, she checked Stevie out of school that day at 2.30. She said this thing. Stevie told me a hundred times, uh, probably a thousand on the way home, I love you, mama. I love you too, son. And it was just constant. Daisy does that sometimes. Yeah. That's a, it's a weird thing that some that kids that age kind of do. You gotta catch them when they're in those moments. I mean, <laughs> I, it's one of those things that I wouldn't have believed it if I didn't have a kid about sure. that age, you yeah. know, where I'm like, that's real. That really does happen. Daisy said, wow. Yeah. She won't oh, tell you what she had for lunch, but she'll say, <laughs> yeah. I love you 15,000 times. That's nice. I'll take it. Daisy's also one of those kids who like will have a thought and then decide not daddy and like she's something she wants to say and then she thinks better of it and she goes I love you. (laughs) She is learning so fast. I know. She's really grown up. She wants you to pick her up from camp. She goes, Today? No, yes. Actually, yesterday. (laughs) She was like, I don't want to go to camp. And I was like, you have to go. Well, can Jillian pick me up? Probably not, sweetheart. (laughs) I would. I'd do it all wrong. Something would explode if I was in the- The other day, Steve sent me to pick her up from camp. I went to the camp and she wasn't there and I started to fucking lose my mind. Where was she? I realized I went to the wrong camp. This is why we need Steve. This is uh, this and a zillion reasons is why. She's going to two camps this summer, mm-hmm. and she was at the uh, one she had been at a few weeks ago. And when I called Steve from there, and I Facetimed him, I was like, "Guess where I am?" And he looked at me and he went, Ugh, and he just hung up. How long? Like how far did? How long did it take you to get to the? the he right had one? to go get her. By the time he went to go get her, she was. It was a whole thing. He asked you to do one thing. He wanted thirty minutes to himself, and you, you just couldn't. I know that feeling. Of. <laughs> and then you're like, well, I'm in trouble. I deserve it. Yeah. So she picked up Stevie at school at 2.30. They get home and she's like, do you have any homework? Nope. Did it at school. Hanging yeah. up artwork on the fridge. At around that time, Michael Moore comes over and begs for Stevie to come and hang out. Weirdly not filmmaker Michael Moore. Thank Different God Michael not Moore. filmmaker Michael Moore. <laughs> 
And at first, Pam's like, no, I'm, I have to go to work. I'm making dinner. No, no, no. But the kids are just like, kids, they, are, kids. kids are kids and yeah. they really want to play. They're on their bikes. And she's like, all right, fine. I gave in and I said, okay. I said, but boy, you better be home by 430. If you're not, I'm going to ground you for two weeks from that bike. But if you're not home by 4:30, I'm grounding you from that bike for two weeks. It went from "I love you, I love you, I love you" to "You're grounded if you don't if you're not home by 4:30" real fast. Like it's just such an or else. <laughs> yeah. For like, be home at 4:30 or else. Yeah, yeah. So they leave at 3:30, and an hour on a bike is plenty of time to be riding around. Uh, more than enough time, time, if you ask me. Okay. I never need an hour on a bike. It's been I don't a know long if I've time made since that. I've been eight. I know. But I feel like an hour is yeah. plenty of an time. An hour on a bike, on a bike, you say? So they head off at 3:30. A couple minutes later, at 3:30. Christopher Byers shows up yeah. and basically is the same thing. Like, we're, like I want to hang out on the bikes. What, what's going on? And Pam, yeah. she goes, you just missed them. Yeah. So suddenly now it's 445 and Stevie still isn't home. Now, he's for sure grounded off that bike for two weeks. Or else. Or and else. I, when Pam Hobbs says or else, ooh, you better be home on time. So five o'clock, Terry Hobbs, who is Stevie Branch's stepfather yeah. and married to Pam Hobbs, he drives Pam to work. So remember, Stevie should have been home at 4.30. Yeah. By the time Terry picks up Pam at 9.18, this is when she learns that her son is missing. Right. So Terry, we're going to learn, he says he's been very worried all afternoon mm-hmm. and been out searching for him, but didn't call the mom at work to let her know the son was missing. I'd pick up a phone. Right. Do you know how, like, I feel like I'm constantly screaming, pick up a phone. How many times am I begging people, pick up a phone? If you're really worried, pick up a phone. Terry, I don't think you were worried. I'm saying yeah. it. My opinion is, I'm sorry, the lawyer says, my opinion <laughs> Is that Terry didn't really care all that much. Yeah. Terry was doing other things. So the next morning, May 6th, 1993, Mark Byers, who is, we're told is the adoptive father of Christopher Byers. I resent that. He's just his dad. None of the boys have ever gone off anywhere. None of the three have ever been missing or taken off ever before. What's, what's going through your mind as a parent? I'm scared to death. That's, you know, plain and simple. I'm scared for the safety and welfare of all three boys. He's on the local news. He's scared to death, plain and simple. And it's a very, like, yes. it's the calmest he is yes. <laughs> in this whole ordeal. I do see a lot of myself in John Mark he, wait, He's, like, heckling. But like, the, And his journey from burning an image of Damien in the woods yeah. and, like, ranting about evil and the devil right. and the devil is really incarnate and Damien yeah. to... Screaming to any microphone that'll have them about yeah. how innocent they are is a wild ride. Can we also say, I'm sorry for everybody who's here for us to talk about the case. It's never the fucking demon cult in the woods. I know we say it every week, but it's worth saying again, especially now. It's n- <laughs> like, especially now. <laughs> it's just never the satanic cult in the woods. It just never is. It's not a thing. No. It's really not a thing. It's you not a thing. Them. You know what I mean? And it's always animals. Right. It's always animal predation. It totally. just is. Yeah. For God's sake. Anyway, thanks for coming. (laughs) We solved it. We solved it. And we didn't even need that Peter Jackson money. We'll get there. We sure did, actually. So everyone's looking for the boys now, right? And there's this guy, Steve Jones. He's a former juvenile officer. And he is searching. And he's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to check out this place called Robin Hood Hills. Right. And he, we're going to take this real fast. Yeah. He finds all three bodies in a fucking ditch. The person who did this uh, is not 
Damien Jesse or Jason, right. <laughs> just to be clear. Um, but he see like he sees like a little sneaker in the water, yeah. and uh, all three boys are there. And the footage and imagery is fucking atrocious. If you haven't watched it, just be warned about that. Well, like, if you've never seen the Paradise Lost documentaries, the very first one opens with like the home video of these boys' bodies in the. W- it is too much. It's too it's much. N- but it's Amy Berg. It's too much here. It's like it's always too much. It's, it's so much. Amy, every all brilliant documentarians hear me. Less is more. Mm. Less. Less, less is more. Yeah, and I, I get what she was doing here to say, like, look. But how, it's like, everywhere. It's like I, I was know. expecting it to be in. Like sometimes they'll do it where it's like in one moment. There are moments that I'm like pausing to take notes, and I'm like pausing on the know, the body know, of this little I know, boy. I know, I know, I know. It's too much. It's always remember too much. in hot coffee where they showed the woman's <gasps> yes. legs. Oh my god, we were not. Ex- I should no. have expected that we this would see old it. Ladies, hoo-ha got completely burned up, and we had to see pictures of it. And we as a society were so shitty about it. Yes, yes, we were. We were so horrible. We about as it. podcast makers were pretty good about it. <laughs> yeah, because it was in obscenely yeah. hot it's right. <laughs> coffee. And it's not fun to drink coffee that hot. You have to wait. You have to wait for it and then you sip yeah. it. And then we've talked about this with pizza. <laughs> when your mouth is burned, your day is yeah. ruined. Maybe even the next day. Because you can't have that coffee. You can't eat that pizza. Maybe even the next day. May, I, that's when it's bad. Oh, I'm so hungry. I can't wait. Oh, no, no. Wait, wait. All right. We got to take it back down because now we see like, now we see the parents like standing around police cars, basically finding out that their kids are dead. That famous footage of Pam, Pam screaming Hobbs and collapses. On, Pam Hobbs is me. She collapsed yeah. on the ground. She's screaming. She's hysterical. She's completely inconsolable. It's fucking awful. <laughs> wants justice that hysterical and she I'm not saying that is she's hysterical yes. as she should be absolutely stop saying women are hysterical when they're not but she has every right to be in this moment like she like yeah. her legs go out from under her she can't believe it yeah. because all night long she's hoping against hope that this isn't going to be the news and it is right we're gonna meet oh my god so many garbage people in this yeah. we meet two of them right now back to back uh John Fogelman Yes, she's back! That hurt my hand so much, but it was so worth it. Damien's like, what is this belt? Damien's not listening to this. Um, So he's the former deputy prosecutor. He's complaining about how hard this has been for him. It's more a part of my life than I would like it to be. Because frankly, I'd like to to be able to not have those three eight-year-old boys' pictures in my mind. Cool story, bro. I know. When you're Amy Berg and you're doing these interviews and these fucking monsters are complaining about how hard this has been for them. What is Amy Berg? Is, does she have to get hammered to do these interviews? I think she's smirking as well she should. <laughs> I, the amount of people that they get here to just put themselves out about how garbage they are. Totally. Like, it's amazing. Like, yeah, what were those yeah. emails like where it's like, no, no, no. The, the innocent guy you put in prison, yeah. he's producing this thing. Right. <laughs> how the fuck did she get John Fogelman to sit here and complain about how hard it's been for him? I know. And so we also meet Jerry Driver. Fucking ding. <laughs> He's a former juvenile probation officer. And to this day, yeah. again, produced by the kid you put in prison for no reason and he's sitting here and he's like oh the cults and the sexual mutilation oh yeah he considered himself an expert on cults because he read a book about it he's like well i was the go-to occult guy even though i had no knowledge or experience and he was like i was just always pointing fingers at the weird kids right so that gave me a lot of credibility down in west memphis arkansas he made a fucking law enforcement cult training video you guys is designed to help law enforcement officers better understand satanic cults basically the west memphis police department (laughs) it's gonna be a long night ouch 
The West Memphis Police Department calls up Jerry Driver. Boop, 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 boop. Yeah. Do you know any weirdos we could pin this triple murder on? Like, do you know anyone who yeah. might be a Satan worshiper? This is their big investigation. I, I know. But they're also tired. It's I really know. hard for them. I know, it's so I hard. Know. And it's- Jerry's like, I, you know, funny you should ask. I do. His name is Damien Eccles. These, plus these two kids he ran with, meaning Jason and Jesse. Meanwhile, Damien and Jesse weren't even friends. Whatever. Right. <laughs> it goes from a cult video to January 26, 1994. Suddenly we're at the trial of Jesse and Miss Kelly Jr. And so we get, you know, Jesse's air quotes confession, right? And he's the only one that ever confessed. Yeah. One of our experts in this uses the R word. Oh, my God. We I, don't say that word. No, we're not playing it. Absolutely not. But Jesse had an IQ of 70. Yeah. So he had intellectual disabilities. He was the only person they could manipulate in that way. And they lied about you could see his, you could see your dad. They interviewed him for 12 hours. We hear the last 45 minutes of it. Right. You do the math. And we'll, we'll get into more of breaking this down later. But Jesse's quote confession is that they beat up the three boys. They were sexually assaulting them. And there's this montage like as we hear jesse on the tape again 45 minutes of a 12 hour interrogation we get this montage of people on the stands you know cult meetings satanic meetings things that were supposedly said to them by jason and or jesse and or damien and that combined with jesse's quote confession bada bing bada boom yeah we got a wrongful conviction here Right. And so it now it's a month later, February 28th, 1994. We're at the trial of Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin. So they were tried together. Jesse was tried separately and first. Right. And so we oh, meet- also we're, we meet Sharon French, juror number nine. Fucking idiot, Sharon French. I'm sorry. My opinion is that Sharon French is an idiot because to this day, she believes they're I guilty. Today, I know. Amy Byrne is sitting there saying, the guy you put away is producing this. Yes, Your thoughts? And she's like, oh, they did it. You guys, you put a garbage bill in front of her. She's going to smack it. It really hurts. <laughs> I need a cocktail after this. I need, I'm just yes, okay. yes, yes. So there's some dummies on the stand talking about child sacrifices, ritual killings, blah, blah, blah. And we get John Fogelman, the yeah. prosecutor, who's again here with us today for some wonderful and weird reason. Yeah. And he's just sitting there. He's standing there and like, you know, reading Damien's journal. And he just says, you begin to see inside Damien Eccles. And you look inside there and there's not a soul in there. You look inside Damien Eccles, you look and there's no soul in there. It is so fucking sad because you see (laughs) Damien's face when he says that. And he's trying not to hear it. He's trying not to do it. And I I was sitting there and, you know, Mike has heard an earful from me the last, (laughs) uh, since we decided to do this. And I'm just thinking, I was like, my friend has more soul in him than these pieces of shit could ever dream to have. So they're all found guilty. Jesse and Jason get life. Damien is sentenced to death by lethal injection because he was, quote, the ringleader and the whole community just needs people to be punished for this so they're happy about this and again when they're let out from the courtroom they are if people could be throwing rocks at them they would be I'm surprised people weren't to be honest with you and there are people who are I don't know what do you want to call them truthers like people who still to this day think that they're all guilty there's a shot of Damien that's super famous from Paradise Lost that they use in here where he's in the back of a cop car and he's looking back and he has this big smile he's smiling at his mother and his sister yeah he's trying to tell them it's going to be okay yeah that's the true story behind that Stay tuned for more tidbits like that. <laughs> Follow me for more tidbits like that. So we jump to 2009 where we meet Lori Davis. I love her. She's gorgeous <laughs> inside and out, yeah. obviously. Damien and I probably have 5,000 letters that we've written to each other. 
over the past 15, 14, 15 years. You know, it's the way we got to know each other. This is like the woman that Damien goes on to marry. Yes. And she's giving us kind of their backstory. She says she learned about him when she lived in New York. She saw the Paradise Lost documentary. She said she saw like the second screening of it. She's on the phone with Damien and Damien tells like the greatest story I've ever heard. And we see like the photo (laughs) that he's describing. Yeah. And he tells this story. It's so wild to hear them interact and hear their voices. And I'm like, that's... He was in prison. It, my heart breaks, but I'm going to get yeah. through it. So he tells the story about it's the first place story. Did she tell you whenever she awarded herself the first place prize and rode in a parade? She had this sign on the side of the car that's saying first place and it's got a blue ribbon on it. And it was not even a contest. She just gave herself first place. She's in a car, like a convertible, where she's sitting on top of the back seat, like she's the grand marshal. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and I don't know. She's like a, a kid. Yeah. And he goes, she's like seven. He goes, did she tell you about how she put first place on it? And there wasn't even a contest. <laughs> she put, she, and we see a picture of the car, and it says first place. She just gave herself first <laughs> place, and she's laughing. And he's like, did she tell you? Because I'll tell you about the first place. And she's just waving, like I don't even know exactly what this parade. was was but she's taken it upon herself to give herself first place i was laughing so hard but Lori says that they were writing letters back and forth for years and then she like gives up her life in new york and just moves to arkansas i mean Lori is is the for me like the original let the women do the work because she gives up her life and we'll get into that later like how much she really did and people don't really know like all the a lot of the legal work she did she is now like an expert on reptiles and turtles for this oh my god we'll get into why later that factors into this case it's important but like that's what she was doing when she quit her job like she was reading and educating herself on the law and doing all this shit all how day. did Let's- she have money how could she afford that she was an architect uh-huh and she is just like better at saving money than I was me. gonna say like super <laughs> smart and just sort of knew like okay this is how I'm gonna like navigate this whole thing wow and the cost of living in West Memphis Arkansas is not yeah. New York City yeah <laughs> so now we're talking to Martin Hill who's a case researcher and Dan Stidham who's Jesse's lawyer and we're going back to this confession right yeah and the whole point is like the case was supposedly solved if it was an open case that West Memphis police wouldn't be required to make available documents. The West Memphis police put together an incredibly large investigation even if a lot of it was nonsense and rumors, so we could take on the case. We could begin to ask the questions. So this is super important. I screamed at this. Like, all the podcasts, us included, cover these, like, open cases, and the cops don't have to give you anything, Mm -hmm. but because this case is closed and, quote, solved, like, you could FOIA that stuff. And so all of the case files are there, and these internet sleuths are, like, going through it. These are, like, the earliest internet sleuths. Yeah, someone says it's the first crowdsourced investigation maybe in history, arguably. Yeah. So now, okay, Jesse's confession, right? right? We can look and see what did he actually say compared to what they said he said. Well, because we learned that he gives his confession on June 3rd, 1993, and it is immediately leaked to the local paper in its entirety. Yeah, his own lawyer is like, I read it in in the paper like everybody else. Right, right, exactly. And so what we learn is, like, you hear him being told what to say. We've covered this a thousand times in other cases where, like, oh, and then you chased him, and then you took the clothes off, and then, I mean, how leading it is. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable, and you hear them saying... And about what time was it that all this was taking place? I was at about 12. Like you told me earlier, around 7 or 8 or... Which time is it? 7 or 8. Okay. I remember starting to get done. Okay. Well, that, that clears it up. Did you mean 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock at night? Like, it's literally... Yeah, yeah, I meant 7 o'clock So, so it was dark out is what you're saying, right, right Jesse? Yeah, exactly. Because remember, Pam Hobbs picked Stevie up at 2.30. Right. It couldn't have been noon. Right. 
They were all in school. Exactly. So, right. They interrogate him for 12 hours. We only have the last few minutes. And who is here to educate yes. us on all of it? Steve and Laura. You'll remember them from Making a Murderer season two. They're Brendan Dassey's lawyers. So their whole thing is about these like forced confessions. And Laura teaches us about contamination. And I just love how Steve just lets her have the floor. Yeah. And she runs it. Talk about let the women do the work. And have you ever seen her give like a TED talk? Yes. It's, they're kind of amazing. Like you YouTubed her? She's yes, amazing. <laughs> she like has no cards that she never looks at. She doesn't need them. She she doesn't need them because she just like lives in the truth. Yes. Ah, Laura, you're so badass. And so she just says like, It's because of this phenomenon known as contamination. The police will suggest facts about how the crime happened. They're sitting there listening to the police, listening to their interrogators, ask those kinds of leading questions. Weren't these boys sexually assaulted? And then they know what story to tell back. So, like, the timeline isn't his. It's this this police officer, Gary Gitchell. It's his timeline. It's his confession. And that's what Laura tells us. She's like, they had a story and they just needed somebody who would agree to it and sign their life away to it. And that's what they knew they could do that with Jesse Miscali. He's perfect for them because he has a low IQ. He's suggestible. They know the longer they keep him, if they keep him for 12 hours, he's going to be exhausted. Yeah. If they make fake promises, like, you can go home if you just say if you just say what I said. Right. You know, and then they get this kid to confess. And that's exactly what happened. And at one point on the tape they have to ask Jesse if he knows what a penis is. I know. And I'm like if you have to ask that question we shouldn't be here. Yeah. Think about what you're asking. It's really good. They say to him like Where was he cut at? At the bottom. On his bottom. You mean right here? Mm -hmm. In his groin area? So right. you know what his penis is? Yeah. That's where it was cut at. When you hear it it's like I don't know how you can have any, any other opinion except if you're David Burnett, the fucking judge, he says something that You're should- You're relearning how to hit the bell so that it doesn't hurt so much. I know, I am. That's, did you see that? Yeah. David Burnett says something that you should be horrified by. Yes. Because he's, he's a judge. He's the original judge from the case. He's here now. He looks like he's hammered. Again, I don't know how Amy did it. Teach me your ways. I know. Because he says, he's like- People don't tend to confess to crimes that they didn't commit. It's unbelievable. I was like, girl, are you new here? Like, everyone- at home, that should be scary that yeah. a judge believes in no uncertain terms in false confession. That's right. wild. It is. And so the bottom line really is that the cops didn't do their jobs. They didn't talk to the families. They didn't try to confirm alibis. They tricked Jesse into saying all these things and then they were off and running. And like, this is where we start to meet people in their lives that could have been their alibis. We meet this woman, Jennifer Bearden. She's a childhood friend of Damien and Jason and she's like, I talked on the phone to these boys all day, every single day. Like, yeah. we'd go to school, they'd go to their house, I'd come over to my house and we'd talk on the phone all day. That day was no different. She's like, I called Jason's house and Jason and Damien and Jason's little brother were playing video games and they weren't really talking much so I remember I got a little irritated at them and Damien asked me to call him later that night. There was never a night that we never spoke and, and I remember that we had talked that night. She goes, I was a little irritated. I'm like, get outside. Stop playing video games. Go outside. <laughs> but then you get outside and you get accused of murder. I you know. Really can't win I know. Either. And I get yelled at every time I yell at people for playing video games instead of going outside. They're like, girl. Oh. <laughs> the thing about this girl is that she was on the phone with them until 930 in the evening, long after they could have committed these fucking murders. Right. So I'm sure you could be thinking, okay, so a friend said they were on the phone. There's no real proof of that. Uh -huh. Wait. I know. Pull the fuck over. <laughs> Again, you should not be in a car. No. You should not be in a car when we're covering West of Memphis of all things. I know. Wait till you hear Jesse's alibi because Jesse was 40 miles away at a wrestling match. They call like 10 people on the sand. To Jesse and Jesse's trial. There's like 10 alibi witnesses who were wrestling at a wrestling match There's with him. There's a sign-in sheet, yes. Jesse's name. There's a fucking photo. There's a moment. This guy, his name is Dennis Carter. He's a defense witness. Yeah. He's on the stand saying he was at the wrestling match and we meet him today. 
today and they do this amazing thing where on the stand he's like yeah I was there with Jesse and Freddie and today he says the same exact thing in the same rhythm and yes. the same order yes do you remember if you went wrestling that night yes sir I did okay do you remember who went Jesse Freddie me and the Jesse and Freddie. Jesse and Freddie. And it's like, we hear from the lawyer, it's like, no one seemed to care about the 10 witnesses at the wrestling match. He said during the trial, during Jesse's trial, he's like, when you look back at the jury's notes, which I guess he has access to, no one cared. No one paid any attention. You guys, he could not have done it. He there was 10 people that testified that he could. He signed in. A signature and a photo. It's unbelievable. <laughs> there was so much like this with the Adnan Syed case yeah. that's like so clearly presented to the jury that they just didn't pay attention to. How in the moment do you like as Jesse's attorney allow them to not pay attention to this uh, yeah I don't know how when, like when you're giving your closing argument how is this not the only thing you say for three hours I know but then if it's like well no I mean, he was he was there he confessed and he right because the confession is all that matters it's unbelievable which is like I don't I don't know I would think that I, if there was photographic evidence and a signature right and 10 people I saying mean, he did it it's crazy so December 3rd, 1999, Damien and Lori get married. Yay! And they do this thing where, you know, it was the first time Damien had been touched in seven years other than when the guards were beating the shit out of him. And you hear Damien and Lori, they're like, Damien's on the phone from death row. Yeah. And they're like telling the story together. And it's really sweet because Lori's like swooning in the moment. Uh-huh, She's still really uh-huh. like cute about it. It was a Buddhist ceremony and we and we kind of wrote it ourselves. We'd intersperse a lots of, you know, bowing and then kissing and hugging. I think you're supposed to only kiss once or something in the ceremony. So we just, we made it, it seemed like it was a part of the ceremony. So that was nice. That was really nice. David's like, the guards didn't know what the hell was going on. We were just smooching and being in love. And like his first real like kind warm human contact in seven years. I mean obviously like Damien is innocent but like did her family think she was crazy? She didn't tell them for a while. About the wedding? About any of it. Wow. <laughs> yeah I mean like what do you do when you fall in love with a guy who's on death row and is mm-hmm. wrongfully incarcerated? Like, what, what the fuck do you do? In the late 90s when not all of this was out yet. Remember yeah, like, right? like West of Memphis wasn't a thing yet. Right right. Oh my god right. So we meet some more lawyers of Damien's uh, Dennis Reardon and Don Horton Oh and God. they are just super into it right away. <laughs> but they're like, Lori, we're like a two-person well, firm. Here. We get the story that like Lori goes to see them in San Francisco. How did she pick these lawyers in San Francisco? I don't know how she did. I don't know if she went there, if she called them or what. We gotta f- I would love to find that out because I'm with them. They're like, look, this is a super compelling case, but they're really clear that she was really clear. I am not trying to get him off death row like a reduced sentence. This is about his innocence, which I thought was a really interesting thing for them all to be pointing out. My reaction was, if it is a case about innocence, but they said is that there's all of this investigation that has to be done on the ground in Arkansas. And we're, you know, a two-lawyer partnership in San Francisco. How are we possibly going to get the resources to get on the ground and really investigate a case in Arkansas? Lori Davis said, I'll find a way to do it. And Lori's just like, I'm going to get it done. I'm going to find a way. And she does. <laughs> like, it's Let unbelievable. the do the work. I mean, it's truly. So now the West Memphis Three, are they're starting to get a lot of support. Eddie Vedder's here. Oh, my God. I love him. He's raising a ton of money and awareness for the case. Henry Rollins is here being peak Henry Rollins. I don't know anything about Henry Rollins. You wouldn't. Okay. <laughs> you wouldn't. He's like, a, he? he's like a pioneer in the music industry, but he was in a band called Black Flag. You, you've never heard what? of them. You're glazing over. <laughs> oh, my um, God. He's like an icon. I uh-huh. met him once at one of these signings. He's very cool. But this is so peak him. Yeah. He's like, you know, I wanted to do a cover album for charity. I, I called Iggy Pop. He said, sure. I called Lemmy. He said, I'm in. 
I called Chuck D from Public Enemy. He said, you got it. All to help these three guys who I'd never met. I call Iggy Pop. He says, sure. I call Lemmy. He goes, I'm in. I call Chuck D from Public Enemy. He says, you got it. I've and never it is... heard of any of these people. I've like, never heard of Public Enemy? I've heard of Public Enemy, but I'm like, why did nobody call the Indigo Girls? They would 100% have been on the bandwagon. Maybe they were. Right. <laughs> but now Eddie Vedder is here and he's, you know, I love Eddie Vedder. I that love His him. voice, even when he talks. I adore Pearl Jam oh, and Eddie Vedder. He is perfect. Uh-huh. But so Eddie Vedder is here. He's saying. I remember thinking that if we could get involved, you'd probably get them out in maybe one or two years. That's how naive I was. It's usually on average of like 15 to 20 years. I thought if I got involved, I could get them out in two or three years. Eddie! And he's like, <laughs> if I knew then I know. what I knew now, he was like, it would probably be a little daunting. Yeah, even even like, for me, Eddie Vedder. Even for me, Eddie Vedder. Because he says it usually takes 15 to 20 years, which is just like, holy shit. Yeah. And so by July 25th, 2005, Fran Walsh and Peter Jackson get involved. They So here's my question. Yeah. Like, we see that they cold send an email. It feels like they sent an email to, like, freethewestmemphis3.com. You know what I mean? Dot org, yeah. Dark. Like, how did they get involved? <laughs> That's exactly what happened. And really? They, they offer to fund the whole operation, essentially. They're like, what can we do down in New Zealand? We have all this Lord of the Rings money. Like, are right. you interested? And we're in New Zealand, so we're a little bored. And Fran Walsh, talk about let the women do the work. She's yeah. incredible. Yeah. So Lori's been working on the case for nine years at this point, and she's Can like- Can you imagine getting that email? Like, you've been doing this for nine years. You quit your job. You haven't even told your family that you're married. I know. And all of a sudden, you're getting an email from the Lord of the Rings you guy? You have Lord of the Rings money now? <laughs> Here's a fun story. Lori always loved how Fran and Pete would say Eddie Vedder's name, Eddie Vedder. That's how they would say it. Oh, yeah, we were on a call with Eddie Vedder. <laughs> That New Zealand it's accent. It's very aggressive. That New Zealand accent, yeah. I could listen for days. Eddie Vedder. Here's the thing. Peter Jackson, like, I oh, I loved him in this moment because he's saying... I have a pathological hatred of bullying and people in power crapping on people who have no ability to defend themselves. I fucking love that so much. I know. The shade he throws at yeah. so many of these people oh, throughout. Yeah. He like, doesn't care. Now that Peter Jackson is here, and I'm like, hi, Fran. Where's Fran? I love Fran. I but now that he's here, he gets so... He never raises his voice. I know. He's not one of us. But he does say things where you're like, Peter Jackson with yeah. the zinger. I know. I love <laughs> a good zinger. That New Zealand accent. Itty bit up. So... You know, Damien's talking about how this shit happens all the time, right? Yeah, I mean, Damien's in prison. We, so we get him on the phone sometimes. Sometimes we actually get him on death row. And this is where he's saying that, like... Most people think that this case is something extraordinary. It's spectacular in some sort of way. And it's not. People like Burnett and Fogelman, they thought they could make a name for themselves off of this case. Because, really, you're dealing with three kids who were bottom of the barrel, poor white trash, that nobody's ever going to ask another question about. People think our case is extraordinary. Like, we got to get these guys out because, like, this weird anomaly happened where these, like, not guilty people got convicted. He's like, bitch, that shit happens all the time, All though. the time. Yeah. And this is where I got up and I said to Mike, I was like, I don't know if I can do this. Where he's like, the state would kill me. Yeah. And Jason and Jesse would be in prison and they'd move up the ladder. And I'm like, it's it's very hard to hear my dear friend uh, say those things. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. So we're back with John Fogelman, the prosecutor <laughs> and here today amy yeah. berg is like girl what the fuck right. and he <laughs> says he's like they're asking him how did you decide why jesse's trial would go first before damien and jason and he has to think about whether or not he can answer that question and he's like i'm hesitating what what shut up because i don't even know how legal it is but let me just say like his answer even though like they railroaded these kids and they're all evil his answer is a fine answer he's like in general a case with a confession uh, would 
would be your easier case as opposed to one without direct evidence. Can I translate that for you? Sure. There's no evidence against any of them. So if they have Jesse's horrifying confession, right. yeah. then Jason and Damien are as good as dead. You know, it's yeah. the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So they couldn't play Jesse's tape at Jason and Damien's trial. So this must have been, they don't tell us who made this decision, but it must have been some judge who was like, that's prejudicial, which is just, you never hear of good things happening in this case for the boys. Yeah. So it's sort of like, wow, that seems weirdly fair. Yeah. Until you realize, oh, wait. So this means yeah. that they just have to like get people to say what they want them to say on the stand. And Jesse wouldn't do it, by the way. I was just going to say, we need to say Jesse was offered like less time or a better life in jail if he would testify against Jason and Damien and he wouldn't do it. I mean, think about that. You're yes, a 17 year old kid. I'm sure they're lying to him. Like, I'm sure they were trying to promise him the world. And he was like, I'm not doing yeah. it. I'm yeah. not doing it. So does it, what does that say about his confession? I can't. I, I can't. I can't. I can't. <laughs> so Laura's here to tell us, like, because they don't have any evidence, they have to rely on, quote, witnesses and oh people they can convince to say all this ridiculous shit. And Damien, at one point, he's like, I think this case was never about justice because they knew we didn't do this. Fogelman knew we did not do this. That is really hard for me. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like, it's one thing. Like, I there's a part of me that believes the people who railroaded Stephen Avery believed that he did it, you know? Mm -hmm. Or whatever. Like, pick your case where the guy is wrongfully convicted. And you think that, like, at least the cops believe what they're saying. They're, like, cutting corners to do the right thing. Exactly. Is how they feel. And it's so right. Oh, my God. You know, right. I mean, it's, all, it's so fucking wrong. Yeah. I mean, obviously. Yeah. But just the, the idea that these guys knew what they were doing to these kids, it, that is... You want to talk about not having a soul. Yeah. You know, like right. that is. And Fogelman, who says Damien doesn't have a soul, is the guy doing it. Yeah. It's, it's like, all right, projection. I, Go I, to therapy, John. I know. Talk space or whatever. <laughs> Peter Jackson. And he's just like, you and I can't have any fun on Peter Jackson's watch. He's got, we're getting down to work, you Well, guys. because there's like, they don't have an actual motive, right? right? So you have to say that they're Satanists. Or you have to say yeah. that they're devil worshippers are doing all this cult. Because like, Damien doesn't have a soul, remember? Right. They're just evil for the sake of evil. <laughs> so Peter Jackson's like, look, I put that Lord of the Rings money to good use. I called up John goddamn so, Douglas. This is the thing. Like, what is so sad, the only thing that is sad about these guys getting out is that it takes a fucking Peter Jackson to make it happen. Right, absolutely. Because when he's like, we wanted to get an we wanted to get an expert to analyze the crime itself, he's like, we wanted the best of the best, so we called John Douglas. You guys, John Douglas, like, invented profiling. Yeah. John Douglas literally is... Like, there's no, you can't even say he's the best of the best. He invented it, you yeah. know? That's not somebody I have access to. Exactly. So, like, if my best friend is accused of murder and I want to get them out, I know they didn't do it. I can't get John Douglas. And John Douglas is one of the reasons why they're out. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you Lori's phone number before we leave, just <laughs> <Right>. in case. Because <laughs> she'll get that shit done. Well, the thing that I love about John Douglas is that he's like, look. If I do an analysis like this, you may not like what I have to say. I'm not a hired gun. When I work on a case like this, I work for the victims. I, no matter who brings me in, I'm working for the victims. You might not like what I have to say. Yeah. So if you agree to that, like, let's go to work. Totally. I mean, that's going to be $8 million, but let's do it. Yeah. And so he's like, so here's what I thought at first. You know, looking at the crime scene and looking at all this, he's like, I think it's a lust murder, which yeah. is a sexually motivated crime. And I'm like, John. Yeah. Like, he's saying that they, the boys appear to have died of, of blunt force trauma. There was evidence of sexual mutilation of the victims. Um, and, then, you know, he's explaining the way they were found. They were hogtied. Like, these are fucking 
structure. It's so awful. And he says what we always say. You start with the families and you work your way out. Right. You start with, like, the closest people to the children and work your way from there. And, like, we are going to find out that none of these fucking fathers, especially at the time, were ever looked at, interviewed, nothing. So they start looking into John Mark Byers, who is such a character, right? Yeah. And who (laughs) was, like, leading the charge against the West Memphis Three and Paradise Lost and now has had a change of heart. But we see him, like, back in the day, again, making it about himself. Again, it's like, I don't know how he does it, but he's like... I had hair removed. I had to have over 30 pubic hairs pulled out plus the roots. I had over 30 pubic hairs pulled out plus the roots. <laughs> Look, I gotta tell you, like, this guy is a character and probably not a murderer. That sucks. 30? 30, 30. 30 pubic hairs plus the roots. I don't know, but like that and then... It's John Douglas at your door. I, I know. Which is what happens. And John Douglas is like, they kicked me off their porch. They I wrote down, look, if even if John Douglas suspected me of a murder, I would be honored to be interviewed by him. Totally. You know what I mean? And also- I'm like, you get to interview me, but then I'm going to interview you. Kicking someone <laughs> off their porch is I a know. great way to make John Douglas be like, I'm going to look into that guy a little bit more. But I got to, just to go back to the 30 pubic hairs and the root. Plus the roots. I know. <laughs> so they are really looking into John Mark Byers. They luminol test every surface he's ever touched yeah, yeah. in all of his years. And then John Douglas is like, yeah, no, not him. No. <laughs> Hard pass on John Mark Byers yeah. being our guy. When he is accused by the police and we hear his his like being accused, his response is so It sinked. makes me so mad. <laughs> I gotta hold on to this chair. It's, it's almost more than I can believe, you know, of what you just said to me. And it makes me so mad inside that I just kind of got to hold myself here in this chair. Like, it's so sing-songy and, like, I agree with you, John Douglas. This guy didn't do it. And so this is also when when John Douglas is like, oh, can I just chime in here? I'm sorry, Amy. Right. Um, just real quick. <laughs> Satanic murders aren't a thing. No. They don't exist. Like, right. from John Douglas's mouth, he's like, murder is murder. Yeah. And he's like, if there's a Bible, what would it be? A Christian murder? Right. He's, like, all, he's all mad at Oprah and Geraldo. Please don't lump Oprah and Geraldo together. Two, I mean, apples and oranges. <laughs> and we get this news reporter who's like, police say Satanists in our area often conduct their rituals in remote wooded areas. Satanists in our area usually do their rituals in wooded areas. And I'm like, usually? You, this is on the 6 o'clock know, news. They I, usually... I and I'm like, so go round up the rest of them. I know. But like, it's not Damien, Jesse, and Jason because they're they're on trial right now. So who else are is usually doing the cult sacrifices in the woods, lady? It's unreal. And now... Can you strap yourself in at home? Because you shouldn't be in a car at all. But what John Fogelman did with this fucking knife is unbelievable. This knife story is bananas. And so basically the the story that the media gets is that they found this enormous serrated murder knife in the pond behind Jason's house. And like we learn Mm -hmm. from the lawyers that the cops called the media basically and was like, hey, come to this pond on this date at this time. We're about to like reveal some new evidence. And there's this image of this diver coming up from the ground with the fucking knife. It's a terrifying murder knife. Like 20 minutes after he goes diving, like he just finds the knife. So Dennis, the lawyer, is so funny because he's like, the diver told us, we have the paperwork, where the <laughs> that he was told where the knife would be and what it looked like. And yeah. he's like, we also have a reporter, and we have the paperwork, <laughs> who was called, and they're like, come to the lake, we're about to make this big discovery. So yeah. the lawyers are like, look, you have an informant, you know where it is, like, that's perfectly fine, right? right? But the thing is, this informant is really important. So you would- It was never called at trial. You would think that's a no-brainer, that right. Fogelman would be like, tell me the story about the knife as he's like parading the knife around, right? right? But Fogelman didn't do that. He 
lied. He didn't tell anyone that he had an informant. He had a hunch is what he said. It right. just, he came to him in a fucking dream. Arrest right. him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What we learn is that- That John Fogelman had been told how it got in the lake. It was thrown in the lake by Jason's mother. And so there's a connection to Jason. Why not bring it forward? Because the same people who told them that it was in the lake, let him know that it was thrown into the lake a year before the crime. Scandalous, right? Like she found out her kid killed these other kids and then threw the knife. No, she threw it in the pond a year before the murders. And that's why Fogelman had to lie and say, I had a hunch because the informant couldn't exist. Right. Because the infor- then the knife wouldn't be this big get, this big reveal because it never happened. But the did way the he defense attorneys not know this at trial? Why couldn't they say this at trial? I don't know. I think it came out. It had to have come out much later. Yeah. Then we meet Jesus Christ. Just get, just take her. <laughs> Fucking Frank Peretti. This oh my guy God, is guys. straight out of The Simpsons. You know how The Simpsons yeah. would have like those shitty lawyers and they have that voice where he's like, I'm here to tell you about that. Yeah. He's right out of the Simpsons. So he's an associate medical examiner and he's here to tell us how that knife, the murder knife that was dropped in the pond a year ago, made all these marks on the boy's body. The thing that's important to know about this, and we learned this from the defense attorney, is that Arkansas is one of the last states that has a crime lab that is run by the prosecutors. What that means is, is the medical examiner is not a witness for what actually happened, but he is an actual arm of the prosecution. The guy who's going to testify to this murder knife isn't an unbiased witness. He is an arm of the prosecution team. He has no reason to look at this knife mm-hmm. with any sort of independent lens. Right. He wants to convict these guys. And enter Peter Jackson, who's like, you want to know some more tea on Frank Peretti? <laughs> He's not even board certified. No! Dr. Frank Peretti was the assistant medical examiner at the time the autopsies were conducted. He's not actually board certified. You get five chances to take the board exams in Arkansas, and Frank Peretti has failed them twice. He's opted out of taking them again for personal reasons. For um, personal reasons. You only get to take them five times. My question is, how does this guy have a job? If you can only take it five times, you fail it twice. Literally, how are you qualified for this job? And if you're like, I, you know, I'm gonna, pa- I'm not gonna take that test. <laughs> but you can still have your job to right. be called to the stand, like to the, testify as an expert witness, and to not, to, you just don't wanna, right? You don't feel like it. Totally. <laughs> I don't feel like a lot of things, Frank Peretti, but I'm here. But what this guy is saying, this Frank Peretti guy, he's painting this truly horrifying picture. Yeah. To the jury, right? Nothing he's saying makes any sense. Nothing happened. Nothing that he says is real. This is also the part, like, it was artistically done, but this is, like, they're talking about the gouging and the cutting, and they're intercutting it with, like, images of the boy's body. It was just, I mean, it was, like, vomit-inducing. Yeah, yeah. What Amy's trying to do, Amy, like, I know her. Hi, Amy. (laughs) um, Is to say, like, you can imagine why this jury would say something needs to be done about and, this. Right, and the point is that this guy's testimony, this Peretti guy who is not board certified and failed the fucking test twice, it was his testimony more than anything else that made the jury give Damien the death penalty. Right, and so, but what he's doing, he's like ranting and raving, not making any sense on the stand, but he's using this book. Uh-huh. He's like, I know the guy who wrote this book. <laughs> this like expert, this textbook yeah. on forensic pathology. So this textbook is written by this guy, Vincent DeMeo, yes. who's a, a renowned medical examiner. We've heard that name a hundred times. Yeah. On this podcast. And so Vinny is here. He sits, I'm calling him Vinny. Yeah, yeah, Vinny yeah. sits down with us and he's like, oh, that Frank guy is totally full of shit. I don't know him, by the way. He's a Frank Bernie's on the stand being like, we're close personal friends. And yeah. so Vinny is like. The thing that's most interesting in this case is that while the autopsies are done in exquisite detail, to me, the interpretation of the findings 
are completely wrong. And he is the one who tells us all of these marks and scrapes and cuts and like the mutilation that was done to the body was done by animals. Right, because he's like, it doesn't make any sense, this violent, violent crime, and then you're like gently scraping a knife on them. It doesn't compute. And also he's like, I can tell because I'm the fucking expert. I wrote the book. I don't know if you remember that. He's like, all of these wounds happened after these kids were dead. Why would you be torturing and mutilating a dead body? Like, it doesn't make any sense. And this is where he's saying like, red flags should go up when a body is pulled from water, especially in the month of May. At that latitude, those reptiles are in high gear. They're feeding at their highest level, their most voracious appetites. This is when they're at the height of their feeding season. They're starving. They're eating anything. Mm -hmm. Like, this gets crazy so fast. I know. Suddenly, we're at some, like, farm full of snapping turtles. We're with John Richards, a turtle breeder with these alligator snapping turtles. Because they were found in Robin Hood Hills. Every The locals call it Turtle City. Exactly. There there are these snapping turtles that literally look like dragons. It's fucking crazy. These, hold on a second. These turtles, (laughs) they look prehistoric. Yeah. They are growling. They are hissing. They are massive. They are scary looking dinosaurs. And so, at this... This guy's farm, they pull one of these massive prehistoric turtles out of the tank. The guy puts his arm up to let the snapping turtle bite it. And I fucking screamed my head off. And the turtle bites it. Yeah. And the guy's John, he's like, no, 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 keep it going. Just keep going. This is this is the bite mark I'm looking for. You can already start to see the outline of the jaw. He's like losing color in his face. Right. Like this turtle is on his arm like a fucking, like a, I don't even like, I don't even like, know, like, like a, a turtle. Like right. someone's holding the turtle. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, like, dr- like his arm, like the fatty part oh of his arm. God. And he's like on it. And then, but when John's like, no, just leave it. No, 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 just keep it going. Cause he wants to get a good mark. So the point is when they pull this turtle's mouth off this guy's arm and you see the bite mark and then they show you a picture of a, of a mark on one of the boy's bodies. It's exactly the same. I mark. mean, they do the transition overlap it's exactly that is your holy shit moment right and then we learn too it's like right well animals always start with the soft tissue I don't know like the scrotum and And the the penis penis, and the lips and the ears and we see horrible crime scene photos but all of those things that the serrated knife supposedly did it's in all of those areas and then we're like in a tank seeing a bunch of these like prehistoric turtles do this to a pig (laughs) and it's like a dead pig but it's proving their point like they're going for that that soft, fatty area. And and Peter Jackson is like, we didn't want just one opinion. We thought the best thing to do was basically to get six or seven of the very best people. Get a wide range of views. Every single one of the independent um, experts that we approached came up with the same findings. Literally all of these seven experts come back with the exact same results. It was Including animals. Spitzy. Right. Spitzy's was here. Was Spitzy there? Oh, yeah. <laughs> then, because they've got Peter fucking Jackson money, they fly all of these experts down to Arkansas to meet with that Peretti guy, the guy who failed the test twice, yeah. to, like, convince him that like, this is what happened. Dr. Peretti listened patiently and nodded his head and said at the end uh, he would consider all this, but he had concluded that this couldn't have been caused by a turtle. And that's kind of where he drew his line. We're the experts and he failed the test twice, but he's already determined that it couldn't have been done by turtles. So this isn't going to change anything for him. It's yet another thing that Frank Peretti doesn't feel like doing. Right. <laughs> so John Douglas is like, oh, remember how it was all about the lust murder? No, no, no. I got the I got the, the science about the animals. Right. Thanks, Peter Jackson and your Lord of the Rings money. And it all makes sense. It just all makes sense, you know? And so, again, Peter Jackson and his Lord of the Rings money. I mean, when they when they emailed Lauren, they were like, we want to finance this. Yeah. Did they ever? Yeah, yeah. So I'd love like a hard number of like what they 
spent. Uh, yeah, I would love that too. You know, and it's like still happening. So who the hell knows? Yeah. But um, <laughs> so Peter Jackson's like, I have all this Lord of the Rings money. Really don't know what to do with it. I'm going to put it all in DNA testing. And now, right. like, the men in prison are adamant about this DNA yeah, testing. You mean like Jason and Jesse and Damien? Yes. Because if they get all this DNA stuff tested, and these guys actually did it, it's going to prove that they did it. So the fact that they're like, no, go test everything. And we see this list. I mean, yeah. what they tested was so long. I don't, I mean, just in talking to Robbie with the add-on stuff, there's so much stuff that Robbie would personally fund for them to test. But it's sure. up to the it's up to the state whether or not they test it. So I don't know how Peter Jackson got all this stuff tested. He, it was just an independent test. And then you have to present it to the state, which is what we get into later. Like, they won't even hear it. Oh. But it's just for them to like, it's not like for fun, but it's just right. like for his own records uh-huh. so that they can move forward. But so not a single thing. And it's just like the list goes on and on and on. Not a single single thing match Damien, Jason, or Jesse. Not only that, it excluded them. Right. Which we know are two very different things. But they did find one very important piece of information. They did. They found a single hair that was in the middle of one of the knots of one of the ligatures. Remember, the boys were hogtied. So they find a hair in the ligature, and they're saying, like, because it was tied into a knot, I think that holds a lot more weight of the hair that the hair, like, maybe came from the person who tied the knot or whatever. Like, if if they had found a hair on the boys in a different situation, it wouldn't have been as meaningful, but because it was literally tied into the knot, it was um, a more meaningful sample. Right. And so now, you know, Fran Walsh emails Lori and she's like, I'm thinking about three people. John Mark Byers, Terry Hobbs, Todd Moore, the fathers or stepfathers of the boys. Mark Byers began looking for Chris from 6 p.m. Terry Hobbs was looking for Stevie Branch from 5 p.m. Todd Moore was out of town. We're left with two stepfathers. But only one of them has ever been scrutinized as a suspect. Mark Byers has been cleared. He's a caricature of himself, but he's been cleared. And Todd Moore was out of town. Right. Not unlike Jesse Miss Kelly, but that's neither here nor there. That leaves Terry Hobbs. And now we get Rachel the P.I. God damn it. Getting Terry Hobbs' DNA is a priority. But because they're doing this, like, just with all, like, the zillions of dollars that Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh has, it's just like they can do it however they want. So they want to get his DNA without him knowing. Which is just so crazy because the plan is to just show up to his house and, like, ask if they can interview him. And Rachel does. And she's like, I will never forget it for as long as I live. He just says, I've been expecting y'all. I mean, and he lets them in. This is years after the fact, right? Yeah. And so Rachel's like, it's, it was kind of interesting. He was, like, decent enough. And a fun fact I learned is that this was really the first time he ever told anyone his story about the day because the fucking West Memphis Police Department never questioned him. What we learned from that is the blinders they had on Damien, basically. Oh, yeah. And Jesse and getting the confession. They yeah. spoke to Jesse for longer than they spoke to any of the stepfathers or fathers, yeah. which is fucking crazy. Yeah. So this is the moment that is in the trailer yeah. <laughs> that I screamed because she's like, yeah, we were sitting there and she looks like so young and casual and cool as she's telling the story. She's yeah. like sitting on a porch. She's such a badass. And she's like, so we waited in the living room while he was in the bathroom, I assume. And uh, that's when I took the cigarette butts out of the ashtray. Yeah, so that's when I took the cigarette butts out of the ashtray. <laughs> Rachel, you what? You what? <laughs> And then, and then the last thing is, it's Dennis the lawyer gets the results from like the Terry Hobbs cigarette butts. Yeah. And he goes, We got the facts, and I'm reading the facts, and I'm reading the facts. And at some point I said, Holy fuck. Holy fuck. <gasps> What could it mean? And what they find out is that, like, you guys, the hair that they found in the knot on the boys is a match for Terry Hobbs' DNA. Like, his DNA is on the bodies of the boys. And wait till you hear what he has to say about it, this piece of shit. Ding. Oh, my 
goodness, you guys, that's our first half of our coverage of West of Memphis. Remember, right now, you can get our second half of this ad-free at the $5 tier on the Patreon and our interview with Damian Eccles. You can get it right now ad-free on the Patreon at the $5 level. Both of those things are going to be our regular episode next week. So yeah. a week from now, you're going to get both of those things on the regular feed. You know what's amazing? Neither of us have cried yet. I choked I up a couple times, but Same. I haven't cried yet. Yeah. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm okay. Okay. I Good. feel... I do feel tightness in my chest, and yeah. I, sometimes I have trouble breathing, but this is great. Totally. <laughs> and I mean that sincerely. I hope you understand what I'm saying, Absolutely. everybody. I totally, totally like, yeah. oh my God, my palms are sweaty. Okay, let's go. Stay tuned for our outtakes for this episode, and get either get ready for next week or get to the Patreon to hear our part two right now. Whatever you want to do. It's up to you. <laughs> we love you guys. Bye. We love you. Bye. If you try to tell me that this guy didn't star in every fucking musical that his high school theater did, I won't believe you. It's unbelievable yeah. how much John Mark Byers makes a triple murder and then three uh-huh. men wrongly imprisoned about himself. I know. It's wildly fascinating. Stop fucking thinking the weird kid is the murderer all the time. God damn it. I know. And Henry Rollins is here to tell us in a little bit. Totally. When I watched Paradise Lost, I had a huge crush on Damien. Like, there's just no, there's no way of getting around it. He's... The cutest boy that ever lived. He's like a, yeah. Yeah. I I would be in a lot of trouble back in the day. (laughs) Having a crush on Damien and, yeah. Isn't it Brendan Dassey? We're out of our minds today. We can't say anything right. Oh my God, yeah. What would they have done to me, like the poor chubby gay kid? I don't even want to know. I know. They would say that you're like a screaming banshee. Right. They Like whatever is like the loudest demonic occult <laughs> thing. That would be. You, that, there's that banshee again. Stay that gay banshee. That banshee's a homosexual. <laughs> now, today, she's like, he was just a normal dude. He was just like a regular, which is a little disappointing. I actually want Damien to be weird. <laughs> I assure you he is. In the best way. 